Well, good morning. Well, it was a nice chilly. I woke up in my house. It was 58 degrees this morning. It's like in the, in the winter, you would never tolerate that, you know, but I'm like, no, I'm not turning the heat on. That'd be crazy. I'm not turning the heat on. But yeah, it's kind of chilly. Um, hey, just exciting news too. Um, you know, uh, doesn't mean that everything is over. doesn't mean battles are over, but hey, how about um, Roe v. Wade, huh? Amen. You know, this country will never prosper under a culture of death. And life is, is um, something now that it goes to the states. It is, isn't over. The, the, the battle isn't over. It, it doesn't, to some degrees in some places, it doesn't change a lot. But it does say that, that we are a nation that, that cares about the most vulnerable and are willing to, to stand up and defend those, the rights of, of those to live. And so um, what an exciting time um, in our nation. Also, too, what a tumultuous time in our nation, right? The division lines are just drawn deeper. And so we have to remember that we're called to be the church, that we're called to speak the truth in love, in love, right? and to be light. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So we are continuing on today in our series through Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We've been going um, through this since January, and we are in chapter 8 this morning, verses 22 to 30. So if you want to turn your Bible on, grab a Bible from the, from the seat in front of you, open your own Bible. Let's get into this together, and let's... Uh, Let's look some of this over. So Pastor Mike was, was talking last week and, and preaching about the, the feeding of the 4,000. Prior to that, he had gotten to, to preach about the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. And we've seen all through the Gospel of Mark, we've just seen these miraculous events, just time after time, that, that, that Jesus is doing all of these things. And, and last week, it was this idea that they were like, well, people are wanting a sign, you know, and, and Jesus is the sign, right? And, Pastor Mike talked about how they're, they're missing this sign, and they continue to just want to be a people that are just seeking after um, a sign after a sign and, and neglecting uh, the reality of, of the signs that they're seeing. Um, so the disciples, they've, they've seen and experienced Jesus' miraculous powers. They've, 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 they've not only seen it, but they've experienced it. He has sent them out. He's given them authority over the demonic realm, and, and he sent them out into the different places around, and, and they've gotten to see. They come back with this report of like, wow, this was amazing. Even, you know, even the demons were subject to us, and, 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 and so they just have this great, uh, amazing uh, experience that they've got going. And, and so now we're here, and, and we're in, in Mark, and, and it says this, uh, that the 4,000 have just been fed, and... Um, Verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. 
So they're in Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the home of, of Simon Peter, uh, Andrew, and Philip. Um, Jesus has fed the 5,000 right near to here. Um, and now some, some folks bring to him this, this guy who's blind, and it says that Jesus then takes and leads him out of the village and does this healing on his blindness. And um, kind of an interesting thing, right? It's very different from what we've seen. And we know this, that, that when Jesus is doing things, he's doing things differently. He's doing those things for us. It's, it's not about him. It's not about his abilities like that, you know, he has to, he's confined to do it this way or that way. But I think many times that what he's doing is he's doing things differently so that we don't get stuck in a box, thinking that we've got the formula, right? That it's, here's the thing, here's what Jesus, so this is always how we, we, we just always do this. And of course, Jesus could have just miraculously just healed him, but he didn't do that. And I think that he did that for us. I mean, for one thing, what we see in this healing is that this healing is gradual. This healing didn't happen all at once. Now, 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 it happened pretty quickly in this event, but I think that the whole idea that it was gradual is something that we can really take to heart and really begin to think about, is that it, it, because the reality of our lives and the healing that's happening in our lives, is, is it's not always instantaneous, right? We would love it if God operated like that in our lives, like if he would just wave his, a wand over us and sprinkle magic fairy bunny dust on us and just boom, just done, changed, whatever it is that we ask for, whatever it is that our prayers or whatever it is that we're needing, we want instantaneous. We're, we're an we're a instant gratification people. We want it and we want it now, right? But it doesn't always happen that way. But, but what we can start to take heart and understand is that God is he's, he's at work and sometimes the healing that he's doing in your life is happening on a gradual basis, Sometimes it's best just to look backwards, right, and see. He, he has this report where he says, yeah, I see, I see men, I see them as, as trees kind of walking around. In other words, I, I, I can see something, but, but it's not really clear to me. It's not, it's not that evident. And so many times that's, that's us in our lives is that, is that we're going through things that we didn't ask for and we don't understand. And when we look at it, it's just there's nothing that's clear about it. It, it just seems murky and miry and, and, and fog. We feel like we're in a fog. But when we look backwards, we start to see, hey, you know what? No, I couldn't, you know, five seconds before that, he couldn't see anything at all. Right? And, then, and then it goes on from there that, that Jesus uh, goes ahead and, and, and puts his just heals him completely after that. And, and so just, I think that from this, you know, we just need to, to take heart and understand that, that sometimes our healing is gradual and it comes in stages. It's not always instantaneous. It's interesting, he told this guy to not go back into the village, that Jesus led him out of the village. People had led him to Jesus, but then Jesus takes him and leads him outside of the village, heals him there, and then tells him to go to his house and don't even go back into the village. Kind of an interesting thing. Jesus is never seeking people's belief through signs. Sometimes we begin to look for all of the signs, right? And to be honest with you, it's a super immature approach to God. Did anybody ever do this? I, I remember when I was a little kid, I used to do this. I'd be like, okay, God, if you're really real, like it'd be dark in my room or something. I'm like, make the whole wall light up, right? Right now. And, and, and sometimes we begin to feel like we could somehow pull the, the, the puppet strings of God and, and, and cause God to to behave or to react or act in a way that, that we would deem would give relevance to the reality of him in our lives. But, but God isn't going to operate like that. I mean, God isn't going to enter into a, a manipulative relationship with any one of us. 
What he's going to enter into is a healthy relationship. And, and so we can't just be a people who are always just seeking signs. As a matter of fact, the, the signs are there for our faith, and, and the signs sometimes are a reality. But I think that God wants to take us deeper. He wants to take us to a deeper place so that we're not just the people who are seeking the signs, but, but people who are, when, it's, when you're in the miry, when it's, when it's foggy, when you can't see, when it's unclear, you're still with him and you're still moving forward with him. Sometimes I think that's maybe the time where, where, where God is the most pleased in our lives. Sometimes we feel like, well, it's gotta be that mountaintop experience. It's gotta be that time where I was operating like just as, uh, just, Mr. Christian Thoroughbred, you know, like just running out, just lengths in front of everybody else it felt like, you know. Is God really pleased in those times? I mean, it's not that he's not pleased with us in those times, but maybe sometimes it's in that time where we just don't see, but we're there and we're continuing to follow and we're pushing forward. And even though it's hard and even though we're struggling, even though it's not clear, and even though there's no signs of anything, Maybe your quiet time feels like you're chewing on a dry stick. God is still there. And God is, wants to teach us and to grow us into a people who are able to pursue him and to persevere through times of difficulty and hard things. So maybe quite possibly this is what's going on with this healing. Now Jesus begins then from... From Bethsaida, they, they begin this journey, and it's about a 25-mile journey north, and they're, and they're headed to Caesarea Philippi. And that's going to be really significant. We're going to look at that in a minute. But let's, uh, let's just kind of read on here a little bit. It says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him... John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Kind of an interesting uh, thing going on here. So Jesus begins to move them from, from uh, Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi. And, and he's going on this 25-mile journey to make a point, to talk to them. I mean, they're going to Caesarea Philippi on purpose. Jesus never is going anywhere um, apart from purpose. He's always moving, and he's always moving in, in purpose, on purpose. Remember, they asked him, who, who, he asked them, who do others say that I, I am? And in chapter 6, we saw this. We saw that uh, it says, chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so, so they're answering him in this way. They're saying, hey, you know, who, who do they say that I am? That, that's the first question. It's, like, it's a relational question. It's a, it's a spatial question. Who, who are the people that are outside of, of this? Who do the people outside of this church say Jesus is? Who does the world say Jesus is? Basically, that's the question that's being posed here. What, what, are, what is the consensus about who I am? That, that's what Jesus is, is asking his disciples. 
If we looked into it here just a little bit more or less, <laughs> Matthew 16, um, anyway, I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 16. It's the same account. It's just Matthew's account. And Matthew goes into a little bit more detail. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. <clears throat> so, same account, just a different thing. Well, who do they say that he is? Who does the world say that Jesus is? You know, it, it's kind of a, uh, it's an interesting thing. As a matter of fact, about 92% of the people out there believe that Jesus was a real person. Most people believe that he really lived a life, that he really existed, that he, he really walked the earth. Even most um, scholars and even most scholars who are not by any means Christians will acknowledge the reality of his life. There's just far too much evidence for his life for, their, for, for him to just be kind of a, a, a part of some mythology or, or something like that. Uh, it, it's pretty settled, and people are pretty settled on this idea that Jesus lived. See, if you're a Jew, you would believe that Jesus was Mary's son. He was a teacher or a rabbi, that he had many disciples. He was respected. He performed miracles. He claimed to be the Messiah and was crucified on the cross. And they also would acknowledge his followers reported Jesus was raised from the dead, but they would not acknowledge that he was the Messiah. A, a, a Jew, a, a, a basic Jew today who is, who is Jewish, who's not a messianic Jew, is still believes that the Messiah is yet to come, that it wasn't Jesus, that certainly he was a teacher and he, was, he did all of, a lot of things, but the, the prophets did miracles at times as well. And so they would give him really no more credence than what they would give one of the prophets or a great teacher. Muslims believe Jesus was born of a virgin, uh, that he is to be revered and respected, was a prophet, a wise teacher who worked miracles, ascended to heaven, and will come again. If you're a Muslim, you believe that Jesus was a prophet, and you believe he, actually that, that Jesus will judge the east gate, I believe, and Muhammad will judge the west gate in the time of judgment. Um, you, also, they believe that Jesus was crucified, but that he didn't actually die on the cross, that um, that Thomas, or not Thomas, I'm sorry, but um, uh, help me, somebody, um, Judas. But Judas was put in his place on the cross and that Jesus was kind of taken up into heaven. Um, if you're a Baha'i, you believe that Jesus came from God, was a wise teacher, had a divine and human nature, worked miracles, and was crucified and resurrected as an atonement for humanity. Interesting. Hindus believe that Jesus was a holy man, a wise teacher, and is a God, a little g God. If you are a Hindu, Hindus 
have 330 million gods and goddesses in their pantheon. 330 million. I've gotten to travel to Nepal, and it's just, it's amazing. There is a god and a goddess of everything. So if you are witnessing to somebody who's Hindu, it's no big deal for them to add another god into their deal if it'll work. So you have to be really careful. And, and our friend Barney, who pastors the church in Nepal in Kathmandu, I mean, they have to really be careful when they're witnessing because, again, to, to the, the Hindus there, it's, it's just, you add one more, it's no big deal. If you're a New Age believer, you, you believe that Jesus was a wise moral teacher, um, but not God. If you're in the LDS church or you're Mormon, you would believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers, and you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he, was, that he paid the penalty for sin, but you wouldn't believe that he himself was actually God, nor would you believe in the triune, the trinity of God. Um, actually, you'd believe that Jesus was, was a good guy who was working his way up to Godhood himself. As a matter of fact, in LDS teaching, you and I could become a god if you worked hard enough, if you did enough things. See, they believe that, that they have a saying that says, as God is, man may become, and as man is, God once was. So, so they believe that ultimately that a, a, a person can achieve godhood, and then if, at that point, you would get your own planet, and your wife and yourself would populate that planet with spirit babies and you would become the God over that. That's literally where Mormon teaching ends. Um, if you're a Jehovah Witness, you would believe that Jesus is actually the archangel Michael and that he is not God, that he is not deity, um, that, he paid, that he became the payment or the sacrifice for sin, but that he is not God. So... BARDA, in 2015, did kind of a little uh, survey. So 56% of the people out there in the United States, it says, believe that Jesus is God. Uh, 26%, this is 2015, believe that he was a great religious teacher like Buddha or Muhammad, and 18% just aren't sure. Out of millennials, 48% out of that number would believe that Jesus is God. 35% believe that he is a religious leader, and 17% are not sure. 52% of the people out there believe that he was sinless. 46% uh, believe that he did sin. 2% um, aren't sure. Millennials, 56% of those say he sinned. Um, out of the people in the world out there that say they've made a commitment to Jesus, 60% say that they have and that it's still important to them. More women than men, 68% of women to 56% of men. White Americans are the least likely ethnic group to have committed their lives to Jesus, 60%. African Americans, 80%, and 65% of all non-white Americans. The more money you make, the less likely it is that you'll trust Jesus. 53% of those making more than 100,000. 63% of those making between 50 and 100,000, and 65% of those making less than $50,000 a year. Remember, the Bible tells us that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in spirit. The, the problem with us is that, is that the more that we have, the more uh, we believe ourselves to be self-sustaining and not in need of God. Um, 
Most Americans would say this. Uh, oh, millennials. Out of millennials, 46% would say they've trusted Jesus compared to 59% out of Gen X, 65% out of boomers, and 71% out of elders. Most Americans would say that he is a way to God and not the way to God, right? They would say that he is just one way of many. Postmodernism has come into our world and it's affected the world. And, and basically, postmodernism has, has presented the idea to the world and to the educational institutions of the, that, that, that we have that, that there is no truth. That your truth is your truth, and, and your truth is your truth, and mine is mine, and, and, and it's all good in the end, because at the end of the day, all of these truths are going to converge on God, and then it's, it's, it's no big deal. But you know, that's, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches by any means, not even close. Legionnaire Ministries did a survey in... August of 2020, and they got this, 52% Americans, 52 of Americans believe Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. 30% of those who would call themselves evangelicals or born-again Christians say the same. Up to 65% of evangelicals would agree with this statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 65% of evangelicals, it says, say that Jesus was the first and greatest creation First greatest being created by God. That is heresy. It just is. So, if 150 million people profess faith in Christ, then the question that I'm going to ask is how well is that faith being expressed in our world? At best, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. I don't think it's even accurate. I don't think that there are 150 million people. You see, you know, even for myself, um, prior to becoming a Christian, if you had cornered me up and said, what are you, Try? What is your belief system? You have to check a box here. I would have told you, well, I guess I'm a Christian. Because that's just all I, that's all, I'm raised here. I don't know. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a, I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a Buddhist. I, I guess I'm a Christian. But I wasn't. And I think that that's where these kind of numbers come from. And so there's this whole world out there that just doesn't know him. And we get upset that the world starts to act like a world that doesn't know him. And in the church, then we begin to start to wage war against the world out there and against policies and all of this kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, some of those things are really important. And as Christians, we need to be active in those things. We need to be a part of our politics and things like that. But the problem is, is that when we begin to believe that our politics is going to change a lost and broken world, we've lost track of the reality of the gospel and what a new creation is. See, if we want to see change in the world out there, it first starts in here, right? With, 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 all of, with the Christians, with those who profess Christ, that we live this out and we walk this out and we take it out of this building and into the world out there. See, this is what Jesus and what the Bible says he is. And there's way more than this. I'm just going to hit a few. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, it gets changed from uh, who do they say he is to who do you say he is? Who do I say? See, it becomes a personal question because this is a personal relationship. 
God has no grandkids. He has only children. Nobody rides the coattails of anybody else into the kingdom. You have a decision to make, and that decision is what will you do with Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Is he the Lord? Is he the creator of all things? Or is he just a good teacher, just a good guy? Is church just a good place to come and, and, and kind of, you know, be better for the week? Because, see, if we believe that, we're not believing the truth. We're not, we're not in really relationship or fellowship with him. See, it gets personal. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is the, the, the beginning of Genesis. It's the beginning of the, the created order. And we see here, we see, the, we see the, the Trinity at work in creation. We see that God created everything, Right? We see that the spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep, and then we see that God speaks. And what does he speak? He speaks light. John 1, 1 through 4, this is why John started this out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is those things coming together, showing us that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He, he's, he's, he's the one, he, he's not a created being. It says that nothing was created without him. Therefore, he couldn't have been a created being. He's the creator of all things. And, and, and we believe, again, that God is three, but yet one. Colossians 1 through 1, 15 through 20. I'll read it to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it's plain. It's plain. There's, there's nothing here to, you know, you can start to, people start to argue things, but you have to argue outside of the Bible about what you think and what you feel. But scripture is, sure, is clear. Jesus did not say, I am a way. He, he doesn't say, I'm a way. He says, I am the way. So exclusive that it says no one comes to the Father but through him, period. Period, nothing, no one. It's the only way. There is no other way. Think about this. Think about what it would do to the character and the nature of God if there was another way. Like, like if you could just choose whatever over here. You could just choose this belief system or this belief system. Then what do you do with a God who picks for one of the belief systems crushing his son, killing him upon a cross? It, 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 
extreme agony and torture. What do you do with a God like that? And then what do you do with you guys who pick that way? Because <laughs> that would mean we're pretty twisted if there's another way, right? If there's another way, you just take this other way. But you see, Jesus, he asked that question too in the garden, in his deepest moment, right? He asked the Father, if there be any other way, let this cup be lifted from me. It was for us that that said, and the reality and the, and the answer to that question is no, there is no other way. If there were, we would do it, but there's no other way. And so we see that, that Jesus paid for the penalty of sin and said, not my will, but your will be done. See, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For from the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's kind of an interesting dynamic there. It's, it, it, it's both belief and the profession of belief. Because you see, what begins to, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when he's inside, he's got to come outside. He begins to come out in our speech and what we're talking about. When we have a relationship with the creator of the universe, it, it, it begins to change us and form us so much that out of our mouths, we begin to speak what's the most important thing to us. See, that's the reality of you and I. We talk about what's the most important to us. We make sure to let people know what we find, you know, what's the most important thing. You know? What is it? What's coming out of our mouth? Because it becomes a barometer of where our heart really is at. So why Caesarea Philippi? Well, Caesarea Philippi is an interesting place. As a matter of fact, in Caesarea Philippi, um, if you went to Israel, you could go to this place. And, and this, is, this is called like the Grotto of Pan. It's called Banias. It used to be called Panias. But I guess that the, the Jews had a struggle with, the, with P, and so they started calling it Banias, but it was Panias for Pan. And, and, and Pan was, was a pagan god. And you see, the, the pagans of that day, see, Jesus, it says that he took them to that region, not to the city, but to the region, and then he begins to speak this stuff to them. Who, who does everybody saying that I am? And you see, the place that they're at is, is this place, it's this cave, and, and there, the waters came up in this cave. And they believed truly that this was the gates of Hades. They, they literally called this place the gates of Hades. That, and, and what they would do is that they would come to this place, and it, was, it, was, uh, it, it looked a little different, but you can see these stone places in here, and they, they had all kinds of idols and stuff, and, and, and they would go and they would get sacrifices to Pan, and they would kill this sacrifice, this goat, and they would throw it into the mouth of the cave and into the water, and, and if it sunk, that meant that Pan accepted their, their sacrifice, but it floated. They had to go get another one. They had to just keep going at it until their sacrifice was accepted by Pan, and, and so this, they, they believed that, that the gods and the goddesses of, of their belief system would go into Hades or the underworld and that they would go through these caves and through the, that water was an access way into the underworld. So they would sit outside of this place and they would do things that we can't even talk about, fertility rites kind of a things, because they believed that if they emulated these things out there, it would cause the gods and the goddesses to emulate them 
out in the world. And so when they started talking about fertility rights, there's all kinds of just uh, stuff that's going on out there that's, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty dark and pretty twisted. Not just with humans, but goats and all kinds of things. And so Jesus takes them to this place, and he begins to talk to them about the church and about the reality of the church and about what he is doing. He takes them here, and he begins to tell them, like, well, who do they say that I am? But who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? And, and what difference? Where, how are we walking with him? How is he making a difference? And how are we making a difference in the world around him? What he, then he begins to tell Peter. He says, look, you're a stone. You're a, you're a little rock. You're, you're a Petra, he says. He says, and, 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 and you're so... You're a little stone. You're a building stone. You're a, you're a block. You're a building block. But, and then there are, this is at the base of, of Mount Hermon. And, and, and so there's all of this rock around and all of this pagan stuff that's going on. And Jesus is telling them, on this rock, on a real rock, I'm going to build my church. Right? I'm going to build my church on that place. And, <clears throat> and, and, and it says that that, that rock is that statement of faith of, of who do you say that I am. That's the, that's the entrance way is, is understanding who Jesus is and, and, and believing on him and his accomplished work on your behalf on the cross. And when, when we do that, we, we come into the church and then, and then Jesus tells us that the church is this thing that he's building. It's no longer an external temple. It's, it's that he's, he's come and he's living inside of the hearts of his people and, and he's, putting, he's building his people together. He's building this thing that's called the church. And again, you didn't come to church this morning. You brought the church with you when you came in. This is just a building where the church gathers. And what's he saying? He says that the gates of Hades won't overcome it. He's saying, look at all of the stuff that's going on in the world around us. Look at all of the pagan stuff that's happening around here. Look at all of the stuff that you just want to hide from and you want to wall yourself off from and just hide behind your, in your house and, and, and pretend like the rest of it isn't going on. He's saying, I'm building my church right in the middle of this. I'm, I'm, the, the church is going to be built right in the middle of all of this struggle and all of these hard times and all of this hardship. And I'm sending you, I've brought you, and I'm, I'm building you in this place to make a difference in the world around us. That's roughly what it would have looked like. You see, Ephesians 2, 20 through 22 says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. First Peter, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That there's a priesthood for each and every believer now. The priesthood is everyone. Everyone is a priest now. You see, the priest, the office of priest, was was a was a place that was a it was a uh, it was an in between place. The priest made intercession for the people before God. 
But because Jesus came and the veil has been torn, there's no one who needs the intercession of anyone else. We have direct access to his very throne room, to who he is, to the power of who he is. And see, this is what he's doing in the world out there. And we look at it, we're so appalled at how messed up it is. It was really messed up back then too. It was really messed up back then. We don't have to panic or worry or be afraid. We just have to be the church. We have to recognize that that God is building his church in the middle of a messed up world and that the gates of Hades will not prevail. Remember that a gate is a defensive weapon. It means that as the church hits the gates of that thing, that eventually those gates won't hold up and that the church wins. We know in the end we win. So we fight from a place of victory, right? And we, when we fight, not hating the world out there, not, not setting ourselves as just being poised against the world, but we come for the world the same way Jesus did. He came for them, recognizing that they were lost. And he began just by these little things, just like he can begin right here, small things within this church out into the community of Sheridan. He can begin to, he'll begin to change the world in your life. Small things, things that seem to be maybe insignificant. He wants to use those things and those relationships that we have to change the world around us, to change the influence that we have around us. See, it's, it's never been any different. I want to read to you really quick out of Jeremiah chapter 29. And, and this, is, this is where the, the, the people of Israel have been taken off into captivity Right? They've been taken off by the Babylonians, and now they're in captivity, and they find themselves in a foreign place, a place that they don't even recognize. And this is what God says to them. Thus says the Lord, starting in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, and it goes on to say from there, the verse that we love to quote, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, right? Plans to, to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. We have to quit living like the world is winning. We have to quit living like this is all just being stripped away from us and ah, we're just afraid. We have to stand up and we have to well, actually, we should just first get on our knees and then stand up and go and see what God has for us, recognizing that this has always been his way, right? Jesus went for the Samaritan woman at the well. He went into Samaria. And then there was a whole, right after her testimony, there's a whole group, it says, that are coming down behind there. And Jesus tells his disciples, like, look, look, they're coming. And the food that I find satisfaction in is doing the will of my father. And I'm telling you now that you're going to get to harvest where you didn't have to plant any seeds. Here they come, find the fulfillment that I have for you. And guess what? It's in the very place that they don't want to do it. 
in Samaria. See, God is always bringing his people into the places many times where they don't want to be because he's got a bigger plan. So, Lord, we just thank you. Just thank you each day here, Lord, that you're at work, that you're doing a work. It's a work that we can't even imagine. Help us to know and to understand the reality of who you are. Help us not to walk an inch deep, Lord, but help us to go deeper. Help us to recognize that this has always been your plan, that you would put light and hope and goodness and your word into the world around you through your people, through the church. May we be the church this day, Lord. May we remember when we go out the doors, Lord, that you're sending us into the very places sometimes that we don't want to be and, and into the hard situations. And may we not just be a people who, who shirk back from those things, but may we recognize that we are a sent people who are to go and to make a difference, to love well in this world, to, to, uh, to stand for the things that are right, to stand in the gap for, the, for those who are not able, for those who are uh, diminished, Lord, for those who are weak, Lord, help us to be those people this week. Help us to remember what you're at work doing. And we praise and honor you here in this place that we understand and know that our first priority is to give honor and praise and glory to you, knowing that your goodness. And Lord, fill us, fill our hearts with the goodness of who you are, the glory of who you are, Lord, that out of our mouths that we might speak light and life to a world who so desperately needs something else. Lord, I just pray your blessing over each and every one here, each and every ministry that you've uniquely woven together, that the things that you're at work in that we don't see or get. Lord, the times where it just seems really um, foggy and unclear, help us to know, Lord, that you're for us and, and that you're for our healing, and not just our healing, but the healing of this world, that ultimately your plan is for the restoration of your original intention. Help us to walk in that, Lord, this day, in Jesus' name.